is episode 130 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And we have, I think, a Patreon-requested episode this time, which focuses on very specific aspect of, I think, a lot of people's favourite little squamates, the blue tongue skink. Yeah, they're immensely popular and for good reason. And you're right, this is a Patreon episode chosen by Hedrigal. So thanks very much, Hedrigal. And Hedrigal actually sent us this exact paper. And yeah, this is exactly the kind of reason why we started this podcast, because this paper is extremely complicated, very dense, very much involved with the intricacies of how the blue-tongued skink tongue actually operates when they're attacking their food. And um, yeah, we're going to boil it all down. I mean, you can boil it down to something quite simple, luckily, with this one. But yeah, we read all 20 pages of this paper to learn more about the <laughs> morphology of, of blue-tongued skink. <laughs> yeah, and a little bit of supplements. Watched a few videos. But yeah, so we're talking about the blue-tongued skink, which is this Australian lizard they're famously robust and cylindrical with these little legs and big old heads. Yeah, big lizards. Grow up to over 30 centimetres long, Ben, and 500 grams, or one foot and 17 ounces. And uh, yeah, live bearing. Half a bag of flour, yeah. Half a bag of flour, yeah. <laughs> Let's introduce the paper. So the paper's by Hughes and Schwenk, 2021. The functional morphology of lingual prey capture in a skinkid lizard, Teliqua skinkoides, in the Journal of Morphology. So um, we've actually talked about blue tongue skinks before on a podcast, even in relatively recent history, because obviously the name, the blue tongued skink, they are famous for their blue tongues. Yeah. And their tongue is actually like a pretty multifaceted thing, as it turns out, because in the past, we've talked about the color of that tongue and how it's used when they get attacked. Yes, I forget the word for the whole spook tactic predation escape thing, but the idea is that they wait and then suddenly surprise you with this bright... Dazzle? No, I mean, no. that's an adequate word. Yeah, I don't think it's a scientific term. What is the word? God, the word, the word, the yeah, word. Brutal. Yeah, there is a specific word for yeah. when they shock things right at the last second. Yeah. Which, yeah, I can't remember either. But yeah, that's the crucial thing is like blue tongues, they won't use it on just any predator. They're not really fussed about showing it to snakes or lizards. But in the very last seconds of an attack by a bird or a fox, they stick that tongue out and it's bright blue especially towards the back and so as that whole tongue's exposed startle is that the word uh, i mean again it's a perfectly fine synonym but is not the term that I'm thinking no, yeah of. anyway they bedazzle the, the predators they surprise them and the key thing is it's like right at the last second so yeah. imagine you're an aerial predator you're a hawk you've seen a little blue tongue skink just sat down there on the floor they're quite slow swoop down go to grab it just as you get there it turns around puffs up and sticks its tongue out you get that split second of like whoa wasn't expecting to see something blue that moment delay is when the skink yeah. gets away and in that split second i think also if you're being attacked by i don't know say like a what have they got over there that attacks stuff? Like a, a quoll? Is a quoll predatory? I don't know so little about mammals. Quolls have pretty big mouths. I reckon they could take a skink. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We'll say quoll. But the thing is, if you're sort of a terrestrial predator, you're attacking the skink on the ground, you're just still going to be on the ground. You can kind of reload a new attack. Whereas with a bird, if you're swooping down, a lot of your impetus for attacking is contained within that swoop. Right. And if you get startled late stage swoop, reloading for a new swoop is like a whole process. And in that time, the skink's going to be longer. 
Anyway, so we know that they use this tongue for startling their predators. They also wanted to see, because some people had noticed that these skinks are also using their tongues as a means of grabbing their food, which is kind of unusual. Not that many skinks actually do it. Well, you had this wonderful setup that I hadn't really considered before, but you have in like Squamara, tongues can be used in different ways, but you've got such an incredible diversity of tongue use in Squamara. We've talked about snakes using them as like lures to coax prey closer before they get got. We've obviously got snakes using them for, what do they call it? Vermonasal sensory system, which is just smell with your tongue flicking stuff. Yep. traditional tongue use of just like manipulating food and things so you've got this wonderful suite of applications and it's probably more diverse than I don't know, any group I can think of at the top of my tongue so it sort of warrants some investigation to sort of see how the sort of tongue morphology differs for these different scenarios because you would imagine that there are trade-offs between you know, being able to smell with your tongue and being able to use it to manipulate uh, prey or food. So, yeah, a whole suite of trade-offs, basically. Yep, as with everything that we talk about here to do with evolution and adaptation and how things are used. Yeah, the tongue of a skink has got lots of pressures. It needs to use it for different things. And like you say, it's important to kind of understand these interactions. And uh, yeah, that was basically what they wanted to do, just to see like how well it actually works for sort of sucking things up, because people had noticed that they seem to be using the tongue as a sort of means of scooping things into their mouths, which is quite unusual. Most skinks just grab things with their teeth. And so in order to do that, to try and understand the mechanism by which these skinks are using their tongues and they're eating things in the wild. I mean, in the wild, these skinks eat a lot of quite slow moving prey because they're quite slow themselves. So they'll eat things like snails and slugs, but they'll eat a whole variety of insects. And if they can catch them, they'll eat small mammals as well. And in this study, they were in a lab and they had five blue tongue skinks and they were just filming them eating things and they filmed them eating mealworms and pinky mice. Yeah, super mealworms at times. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was actually like super worms, wasn't it? It wasn't mealworms. It was like super worms, the big ones, yeah. the big fat. The ones that actually look... At, I mean, like, I don't know about you. Have you ever eaten a mealworm? I think I have, yeah. Yeah, I have too. You know, you get those like packs of deep fried mealworms that you feed to birds. Yes. Yeah, I had some of them. They're actually pretty yeah. good. Not the ones that were for the birds, though. You weren't out on the bird feeder stealing it from the blue tits. Well, no, it was sort of prior to them being put on the bird feeder. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a little bit of tax. I don't know. I don't tax. know. I used to look after this <laughs> lady's bird, garden and like me and my colleague were pretty bored at work. So we ate some mealworms. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, not bad, not bad. Anyway, so these blue tongues, they filmed them eating. And I mean, they've got weird tongues, haven't they? Blue tongue skinks. They're obviously bright blue. They're also very wide. Mm. But the end is like really flat and thin. So like the end that pokes out first is very thin and very wide and sort of quite mobile. You know, yes. it seems to be quite, yes. quite dexterous. Flexible. Yeah. And when they use the tongue to eat, what it turns out they do and they film this high speed. They basically flop the tongue out Which of the you mouth. you can go watch. You can just... You can go watch. The supplementary material I think is openly available. So links to the Would videos. Would you advise? Do you think it's worth a watch, Ben? I would put it above the turtle videos that we talked about an episode or so ago. Yep. But below, like, the videos of Neonolus getting blown off with a leaf blower. Also below the video of the frogs that can't jump. Way below that. Oh, yes. I and would the say, robo-frog. Yeah. 
Robo Toad, yeah. yeah Robo-toad For me, it's good. a solid. I don't know. I don't think you need to go and watch the videos. You can kind of imagine it. Basically, <laughs> when they eat, flop the whole tongue out of the mouth, and as they're doing that, they kind of widen it, right? So the tongue flops out, and it gets wider. It's like imagine you're like sticking your tongue out and trying to lick your chin. It's like sticking it out far. And then once the tongue's all the way out, the top of the tongue kind of like touches the prey. And when that happens, the bottom and the sides kind of fold in underneath yes. and around the sides. They kept of calling the prey. it a saddle shape, which I think is a pretty decent description. Yeah, it's almost like they turn their tongue into like a sort of baseball mitt. That's yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of cups the prey, and then because it's wet, the tongue's moistened. It sticks. It sticks on there. And they've got all these like little lumps and bumps on the tongue that presumably improve that. And yeah, they sort of slap the tongue out, stick it on top, curl it all round, gulp it back in, and then crunch it all up. And that's how the blue tongue skink tongue works. And they call that a lingual saddle. Yes. Probably not super comfortable to sit on though. Too slimy. Yeah. No, and I mean, dangerous. No, but, yeah, it's not ideal. But yeah, so blue tongue skinks, their tongues are useful for predating animals as well as scaring their predators so it's kind of a one tongue does all type of situation and yeah prior to this study there was no formal investigation of how these skinks use their tongues and it's kind of like the sirens we were talking about in the last episode you know unless someone goes out and actually takes the time to study these things we don't really know how these animals operate in very simple ways no and it does feed into sort of you know i alluded to at the beginning this idea that there are all these different ways tongues are used or not bothered to be used in squamata. And they did do a little bit of comparison between skinks that eat using their tongue and don't and sort of other lizard species. You know, they did a huge suite of measurements on these tongues. Really, all the take-home is, I think, unless you want to dig into the actual specifics of what they measured, which is a lot... (laughs) is that the ones that eat using their tongues have different types of tongues. As in, you tend to have a tongue which is more suited to eating with tongue-specific prey capture as opposed to jaw-specific prey capture. Yeah. yeah. And these ginks do have really strong jaws anyway. They do sometimes use... They do employ crunching. Yeah, that's one of the things they bring up in the discussion is it's actually going to be kind of neat to see whether the method of prey capture differs based on like prey size, prey type, whatever. Because obviously there's never going to be a one solution fits all prey for a species that eats lots of different things. Like you would presume they're flexible. I mean, think about how we use our tongues, right? Like how often do you actually use your tongue in prey capture? Not very often, right? But that doesn't mean you can't. Yeah. You know, those like little flying saucer sweets with sherbet in that you can get. Yeah. Yes. That tastes like cardboard on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. It tastes like cardboard on the outside and like kind of diabetes on the inside. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, those are pretty easy to capture using lingual capture because the wetness of the tongue means it sticks. And that's much like what a blue tongue skink is doing. And if you try and eat an apple with just your tongue, you're going to be there for at least two months. And why is that? It's because it's too shiny. (laughs) It is. It's too shiny. (laughs) Perfect defense. And, you know, the skinks are trying to have to make the same comparison when they see a superworm versus a snail. They're not going to use the same technique. Yeah, they're smart beasts. They know what's going on. And so, you know, we know that the skinks are using their tongues and biting their prey. But what about 
what bites the skinks, Ben? Now, in Googling around, I was hoping basically that I could find a news article about this paper so that it could like be like slightly nicely summarised and I could begin to get a handle on it. But I couldn't find one. <laughs> but I did find an article about blue tongue skinks and a paper which I don't think, I certainly don't remember covering in the podcast. And this was published, I think, last year in the journal Toxins. And essentially, blue tongue skinks, not only do they bite stuff and our predators and we've talked about their tongue as a sort of defensive mechanism but they also sometimes get eaten by snakes right and there's this large australian elapid snake called the red belly buck snake which is sudecus porphyraceus and um they're venomous they will try and eat blue tongue skinks what they found out the authors of this paper was that um there's this specific component in the skink blood which is to do with the serum which they're not completely certain which element of the blood it is but there's something in the serum and it prevents their blood clotting when they're exposed to red-bellied black snake venom and usually that's how the venom works impacts how the blood clots and um, yeah they're actually immune they're actually like partially immune to the venom something in their blood intercepts the toxins before it can become deadly and so um, they're not completely protected like they still feel the effects of venom i'm sure they feel yeah it's the difference between a resistance and immunity right Exactly. It's very much a resistance. They're less likely to die. They don't never die, but they sometimes don't die. And um, that's classic. You know, there's obviously an evolutionary arms race going on between the red-bellied black snake and the blue-tongued skink in terms (laughs) of the venom. And yeah, they're just about edging in front at the moment. For now. For now. For now. But yeah, there. So um, that's the functional morphology of tongue prey capture in blue-tongued skinks. I'm sure lots of people listening have got pet blue-tongued skinks. Next time, have a look at how it uses its tongue. And it's probably different when you feed it different things Yeah, as well. I think that's the cool bit is, yeah, see what it, it does for different foodstuffs. Yeah, Or if Check you've just out. got a really lazy blue tongue that just chows down on everything using its jaws and forgets its tongue entirely. <laughs> Equally possible. See what they and that's actually yogurt. something they talk about. Mm. They talk about that in this paper, don't they? That, that you need to consider the effects of captivity on how animals handle prey because they just might right. not have had practice with certain food stuffs. They haven't had to learn necessarily. Um, but yeah, lots yes. of interesting dynamics. And you this. are removing sort of weird trade-offs. Like if you get given a worm and you've been in captivity, you're probably relatively certain that the worm isn't just going to disappear. You don't have that impetus to quick get the worm before it gets away or quick get whatever prey item before it gets away. Mm. You can be pretty relaxed. And that is something that they bring up with different prey types and the speed at which this whole like tongue-first approach is probably slower than just grabbing it with your jaws. Mm. So, yeah. Who knows? It does leave a lot of questions, to be honest, and how this sort of scales up to different species. Well, let's move on, shall we, to our brand new species that we have for this episode. We've got a brand new species, and this paper is by Yoshikawa and Matsui2022, a new salamander of the genus Onychodactylus from central Honshu, Japan, published in Current Herpetology, which is the journal of the Japanese Herpetological Society. So very fitting, a new salamander from Japan published in their very own herpetological journal. And for this paper, we are traveling to Honshu, which is Japan's largest and most populous island. Many, many people live there. I think it's over 100 million people live there. Along with the people that live there, there are also some salamanders. And the salamanders, yeah. So in Japan, there's this genus called Onychodactylus. 
They're known as clawed salamanders, and eco actually means toenail, and dactylus means fingers or toes. So they're actually literally the clawed finger salamanders, oh. and that's because they have these little claws on their feet. The tiniest of claws. Yeah. And 10 years ago, there was only one known species of Onychodactylus, but now with this new one, we're up to 11. So Oof. the diversity of Onychodactylid salamander, um, no, species is increasing rapidly. And uh, yeah, let's talk about this new one. It's, um, what have they called it? They've called it Anicodactylus pyronotus, mm. which is really cool. It's a combination of ancient Greek pyro, which is fire-coloured, and notus, back. And they've named it that because they have this beautiful fire-coloured back. It's like scarlet dorsal coloration. And it's also similar to the Japanese fire-bellied newt, which is called Sinops pyrogaster. Obviously, gaster, the belly notice the back so you got fire bellied newt pyrogaster and now the fire back salamander pyronotus and they've called it the japanese name the japanese common name is something derived from the japanese word homura which means flame i'm not going to try and pronounce it but that's just like yeah. <laughs> that's that's as good as you're gonna get it's good you're gonna get and this is a salamander which inhabits cool humid forest floors near streams in well forested mountains and there's a bit of stuff in there about what they get up to they like they have sticky eggs which they lay on rocks larvae they do have larvae they live in the water and apparently the larvae live in underground streams which sounds like slightly uh, claustrophobic and terrifying yeah just a bit but i suppose but if you're a little salamander larvae it's actually probably a safer place to live than up near the surface with uh birds and other terrestrial predators abound yeah yeah but they're such a beautiful salamander let's talk about what they look like they're kind of like this dark background color and then along the back and on top of the head they have this like orangey reddish sometimes pinkish patterning just like a vertebral a sort of loose vertebral stripe all the way down the back yeah. and it's quite variable depending on which area they're from it can be orange it can be more sort of golden or it can be red or it can even be sort of almost like a fluorescent pink color yeah which is very very cool it's very much like cooling lava or something along those lines it has that wonderful warmth to it and they're quite small aren't they these salamanders 60, 70 millimetres SVL. Oh, right. Okay. And then a bit of tail as well. A bit of tail. Yeah. Probably about the same again. Okay. Yeah. So they're like maybe, yeah, maybe like 12 centimetres long then. Yeah. I mean, they're not, yeah, they're not, not huge, but that's a perfectly, perfectly reasonable uh, salamander size, I think. Yeah. Oh, they're quite cool. They are. They are. They are. And they actually overlap with another species in the same genus, which is... Onychodactylus japonicus. And they actually coexist together, but they don't reproduce together. They don't interbreed, it's thought. So for whatever reason, they live near each other, but they are not interbreeding. Well, that helps strengthen your whole species concept deal, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, if they were all interbreeding and they overlapped in ranges, it'd be like, um, okay. what's going on? Bit of a mess. <laughs> yep. Your species card has been revoked. <laughs> Yeah, but there we go. They did have a little little bit about distribution and stuff and just sort of generally thinking that they probably should be classed as vulnerable just based on a sort of fragmented and relatively limited distribution. Which, you know, it makes sense. It's an island-dwelling salamander. It's not going to have the biggest distribution around. And, you know, Honshu is one of the more urbanised islands in Japan, to say the least. So, 
yeah, tallies up. Vulnerable's mm. not a disaster, but it's not brilliant. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> certainly no, better than some of the species of the bi weeks we've covered, where they exist in one tiny area at the bottom of a single mine shaft that's going to be blown up to build a bigger open cast mine or something along those lines. Yeah, it's not critical, is it? But it's not. Ideal, and I think it helps that they are also quite charismatic. That yeah. striking coloration, that striking look. Surely, surely people want to protect these little guys and keep them around. You'd hope so. So, Ben, have you got any other business? No, none at all. Nothing from Ben? No. Okay, I've just got a few bits. First of all, shout out to our newest patrons. So thank you very much to Brendan Dixon and Jaylene Brown. Hugely appreciated. Thanks very much. Of course, also to uh, Hedrigal for choosing this topic of choice today. If you want to be the person to pick a topic for the podcast you can at patreon.com slash herp highlights thanks to everyone on there i also wanted to give a shout out to some new friends of mine uh stephen breddin and Haley turner these guys came over from the states they were visiting wales and uh they came and said what's up which was really cool yeah nice to meet some people who listen to the podcast and they had so many cool stories because they both spent some time in the Everglades, radio tracking Burmese pythons, among other cool jobs in the USA. So, uh, yeah, they had some mad stories, one of which Stephen told about tracking a Burmese python and having like a really weirdly weak signal and like going to this canal and being like, is the snake actually here? Like, well, this is strange. And then like triangulating this signal, realizing it's in this canal, but it's very weak. And um, he said he was like right down next to the water's edge and he suddenly clocked this like massive alligator. And he's just like, oh. <laughs> You're not tracking a python anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome. Really cool. So yeah, really nice to meet those guys. And uh, otherwise... Other business, I just wanted to mention, I saw this thing on Twitter, Uh so the Orangutan Foundation, who are an organization who sort of do orangutan conservation, they do these like soft releases, you know, where they like get orangutans, raise them up, teach them how to be orangutans and then let them go. But this was in the Lamandau Wildlife Reserve, which is in um, Indonesian Borneo. Makes sense, that's where the Orangutan hangs around yeah yeah that's where they go that's where they are but anyway so um this team had this orangutan called brian and this was one <laughs> oh i'm sorry yes no, do carry on this orangutan called brian it's important to note that ben doesn't know the nature of this story before he starts creasing up <laughs> it's going to be a tragic story isn't it a tragic story about poor brian the orangutan yeah, it is, oh. I'm afraid. Yeah, so they had this orangutan called Brian, and they had raised him up, and they'd released him, and they'd like trained him to be an orangutan, all this stuff. Anyway, some members of the team were on a riverboat going up the river uh, near to camp, and they saw a false gharial crocodile. So that's the Tamistamas that we've talked about on the podcast before. Those like crazy cool, yeah, 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 black stripy, gigantic Super crocodiles. Super fishy in hyper specialized looking. Well, the false gharial, more so than the actual gharial, eats like mammals and stuff because they just get whopping. They get huge. They do have that (laughs) narrow snout. They have the specialized snout that looks like they should be pure fish, but the sheer bulk of them allows them to get away with non-fish. 
Yeah, they're like super. dexterous giants. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, unfortunately, because these guys would have known Brian well, but they saw a Temistema attack Brian and they managed to intervene and sort of like get the crocodile away, which, you know, whether they should or not is kind of, I guess, you know, well, they, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different with something like an orangutan, I suppose, that you've hand reared. Anyway, they intervened and um, batted the crocodile away, but unfortunately Brian succumbed to his injuries, which is just savage. But I was looking and... Obviously, it's super sad because I'd imagine if you work with an animal like an orangutan, you get extremely attached. I don't think it's even like an orangutan. Just any animal you're working with, you get attached to if you have any sort of semblance of empathy. Yeah, but mate, I mean, I've found snakes that I've tracked attacked by, attacked and killed by stuff. Like, and it's sad. Yeah, but you didn't hand read them. An orangutan's basically... If you hand read that snake, you would have had that attachment. I still don't know if I would be as upset about... A hand-reared snake, as I would about a hand-reared orangutan. Like, what if you called it Brian? Well, mate, I don't know. I had a snake die called Freddy, who I loved. There you go. But yeah, I mean, I don't think the emotional turmoil... I mean, you know, an orangutan's so close to being a human. Watching your friend get attacked by a crocodile yeah, is a little different. Friend is friend, you know? <laughs> friend is friend. friend is okay. Fr- that's my tidbit of wisdom. Friend is friend, regardless of it's got having a snake face or a Brian the orangutan face. Well, okay, okay, I, I, I'll take that. I don't agree, but that's fine. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, just a crazy story. And I looked and I couldn't actually find any other records of them eating orangutans. There are attacks on people that have been documented, but it's not common. But yeah, they're known to eat, um, you know, those proboscis monkeys? The ones with the hilarious noses. Yeah, the ones with the hilarious yeah. noses. They look like old alcoholic men. <laughs> <laughs> They eat those. So, I mean, an orangutan's not that big of a step up. But I couldn't find anything in the literature, so I just thought that was a pretty nutty... It, uh, I mean, it is. I mean, I, I think what makes it additionally nutty is you think of... I mean, this must have been a big croc to go for it. Yeah, I think it was like sheer, six or seven metres. Yeah, because, like, orangutans are not small, and they certainly ain't weak. So I would have thought no. the risk-reward for something like that is, you know, I don't think you'd do it lightly. No. You know, they're predators at the water's edge. They'll take what they can get, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I just thought that was crazy, crazy, uh, crazy interaction. And um, yeah, just wouldn't have expected to hear about a uh, Temistema attacking an orangutan. I wouldn't have expected to hear about any interaction between orangutan and crocodile. <laughs> that's just no. not something that's on my radar. Yeah, no, pretty surprising. But there, there you go. I think uh, that's all the other business that I have. So... Uh, Unless you've got anything else. No, I don't. I no, no. I'm, we I'm can good. tie off our episode on Blue Tongue Skinks. Yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can highlights at gmail.com. If we've made any errors, please correct us. Similarly, if you want to ask any questions or generally just get in touch, please feel free to do so. We're also on social media at highlights or herp underscore highlights. So you can find us on there. And yeah, I think uh, that's about it. So thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.